in any event, it's great to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. 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 You know what? Uh, <laughs> that's a beautiful sound. You ask any pastor, you ask any Christian, <laughs> you know, to get genuine amens about things from the Bible, about the word of God, about Jesus Christ. And it truly is an amen and an amen. So let it be. Um, I'm very excited uh, today, uh, specifically as we've, it's crazy. The Lord has uh, allowed us to to get through uh, kind of the first portion of the book of Revelation. Um, so we've gone through uh, introduction of the book. We've gone through the letter to the seven different churches, which was really cool. And uh, this morning, we're going to start Revelation chapter 4. Uh, now we're going to kind of take a little shift and turn from hearing what Jesus said to the churches to now um, John the Apostle is going to actually have a vision that's given to him or he's actually going to see what the Lord revealed to him. And we're going to get a great perspective of heaven and how, you know, what will heaven be like? Uh, you know, what is the perspective from a heavenly point of view looking upon the earth? And uh, this is a beautiful thing. This is, again, we just sung a song talking about empty me. And uh, so many different people, and unfortunately, so many different Christians have different uh, understandings of what heaven's going to be like, or even just the concept of, of God and being saved. And some people think, well, God saved me so that I can be uh, able to do whatever I want. And, and that's so far from the truth, you know. And uh, we'll see in our portion of Scripture this morning how uh, the reality of what heaven's going to be like may be totally different than what some people think it actually is. But God's perspective is always the best perspective, and I try in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring that in truth. So with that, when you, uh, pl when you get there, please stand. We're in Revelation chapter 4. We'll be uh, reading and studying through verses 1 through 6 this morning. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 down through 6. And it reads, After this I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, thank you for just this opportunity to uh, crack open your word. Lord, and to get a glimpse of heaven from your perspective and for us to understand truly who Christ is. The fact that life and creation revolves around you and that truly to be fulfilled we need to have this perspective of what our what our lives look like to you and so we thank you that we can glean from your truth lord now would you help us to rightfully divide your word may the holy spirit have free reign in this place and in our hearts lord to go ahead and speak to us lord and show us again how this applies to us, Lord. It's not whimsical. It's not magical. Lord, uh, even in the symbolism, there is relevant truth to our lives today. It's not just some hodgepodge out in the sky, but these are down-to-earth things that we can understand when you allow us to rightfully divide your word. So may that be done, and may we bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I said... um, I'm just, just very excited to get into this. And, you know, as I was studying through the week, I'm like, man, Lord, uh, there's no way I can deliver, be used to deliver this message without the wisdom of God to be able to understand. And again, as I said, rightfully divide his word and to see the application for our lives. But this is a great a picture of of heaven from the perspective of God, and, uh, and uh, the Lord allowed John the apostle to see this, and this is a beautiful thing. We get an intimate description, actually, of the holy of holies in heaven. So the most intimate place where you could be, as we saw, uh, twenty four thrones around the main throne, and it's like wow, that's like um, I, it doesn't do any any justice. But if you go to you know, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. or, you know, the Pentagon, the, you know, the, the most, in, the most, you know, uh, secretive place or the most valued place in that building. Uh, where do they where does even man get that understanding? Or you think of the, the Egyptians and how they had the pyramids and the different structures within the pyramids and where, you know, they would lay people to rest. It was always in some place that was very sacred to them. Well, all of this comes from this intricate design of the Lord and how he has cultivated this to be. The Bible has other important references to heaven in different passages. I won't read them, but I'll, I'll, I'll list them. And if you would like to write them down on your own time, you can check that out. But passages such as Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and the, chap, the first chapter of Ezekiel talk about references to heaven. And in passages describing the tabernacle, we know that you know, this is the, the, the prototype of what it would be. Uh, which is symbolically described uh, heaven. Uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 32 talks about that. And also Exodus um, chapters 35 down through 40. In the description of heavenly things, the Apostle John uses a lot of symbols. We're going to start seeing this. And again, this is where in context we have to be able to be moved by the Holy Spirit to rightly divide the Word of God to understand these things. Now, I'm not going to say that I'm, uh, I've mastered any of this, so there's going to be some things that, you know, the explanation I'm going to have is, I, I, I don't know. 
I just don't have a definitive answer to give you. But we look to the scripture and we look to the Lord for wisdom and he will give us the wisdom that we need. You see, however, not everything is symbolic in uh, this portion of scripture. Like many of the parables that Jesus would use, many of the details are merely descriptive and they are not necessarily intended to carry out a special significance on their own. We also need to keep in mind the nature of symbolism, right? Symbolism or symbols, if you will, are always less than their reality. The symbol represents something, but it's so much more. Again, I I always use this analogy of my wedding ring. My wedding ring to other people symbolizes that I am married, that I am taken. But what goes on within my marriage is so much deeper and so much more valued than this ring. (laughs) I mean, I could lose this ring in the drain and it'll be done and I could just replace it, right? But the marriage, when uh, a partner uh, bounces out or if a uh, a spouse dies, those are things that are irreplaceable. That is the depth of the marriage. And that's the same thing with symbolism here in our portion of Scripture. The reality of heaven is so much greater than we have description for, right? This is just what the Lord allowed us to understand of it, right? The scripture talks about there are mysteries of God that remain hidden from mankind. And it will probably just, (laughs) our our finite minds can't even comprehend. We have a hard time with just the things that are tangible, (laughs) In this world, let alone fully unveiled the unseen things and spiritual things. It would just knock our socks off. It would blow us away. And I mean, look at Moses, right? Jesus said, take off your feet, man. (laughs) He's standing on holy ground. And and, and he wasn't even able to see, uh, you know, the glory of God because it would destroy him. It would just destroy him. You You cannot go into the Lord's holy presence in that state and live. So he had mercy on uh, Moses able to show him what he did show him. Again, this side of heaven, we can only imagine heaven as it is described in Scripture. But I will say this. The key word in this section of Scripture is throne. Throne. It is used 14 times from verses 1 down to verse 14. I know we're not going to cover that much Scripture this morning, but if you um, study out or read it on your own time, throne is mentioned 14 times. I'm sure you've, you've heard of the seven wonders of the world. But in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we will see the seven wonders of worship in heaven. These wonders were shown to the apostle John by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to quickly list these wonders and... Uh, I just pray that it would be an encouragement for us in in our daily worship with the Lord and and see how it's so significant to our walk with Christ and having true peace and true true joy. So the first thing that we're going to see is the throne, the throne of God. The second thing we're going to see is the one who sits on the throne. The third thing we're going to see is the rainbow or the radiance of God that surrounds the throne. Next, we're going to see the 24 elders. The fifth thing we're going to see is the seven fiery torches the sixth is the sea of glass and the seventh is the four living creatures all right so that may be a little bit much right now but as we begin to unpack it today and lord willing next week i think you're going to get a better grasp of it and you're going to be confident led by the holy spirit because remember 
Revelation means revealing, right? This is not something that should be intimidating us to where, obviously, not being prideful about it, but he wants you as a believer to understand the book of Revelation. He wants you to understand what the scripture says about him. He wants you to understand the perspective of heaven that, as he sees it. And so these are things that we want to understand. And remember, the, the, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says, he, uh, whoever uh, studies this book and understand it is going to be blessed in a unique way. You're going to have special blessings in the sense of you're, <laughs> you're going to have a great understanding of what God is doing. All right, the first main point is this. The throne of God is the place of honor and glory. All things, all creatures come into submission at the throne of God. The throne of God. As I mentioned a minute ago, this is the key word of this chapter, throne. 14 times it's used in this book. And in the entire book of Revelation, the word throne appears 46 times. So the repetition means something. It's not just being thrown out there just to be thrown out there. The Lord is trying to set the tone. He's trying to get us to understand where he sits. What's the significance of God's throne? The throne of God Almighty is a place of submission. As I just said, everything and everyone submits to the one on the throne. And there's only one that can sit on the throne. It's not his creation. It's not us. It's God. He alone sits on the throne. And, you know, the Bible talks about there's a throne within us. The throne of our hearts, right? And that's another place where the Lord wants to get into the holy of holies of us, us as people. He wants to be the ruler of the most intimate parts of us, right? And when we come into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him to sit on that throne of our hearts, only then and then will we begin to truly live out and function as we were created to do. And we were only going to, only then will we have that peace that we are searching for. You know, many people with accolades and success and all these other things try to fill that void in their hearts, but only the Lord Jesus Christ can fulfill that void. As I mentioned a minute ago, the rainbow is also there. The rainbow is around or surrounding the throne. And also the 24 elders, they are before the throne of God. The thunder, the lightning comes from the throne. All of these, 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 these very uh, prominent, strong things come from the throne. The throne is the centerpiece of worship in heaven and the one who sits on the throne. And that's why it's so significant. The second main point is this. The rainbow is God's glory. It is what we behold. It is what is revealed to us. The rainbow recalls the radiance of God's throne. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28. talks about that. Jasper was also a crystal, clear and brilliant. So John's audience would later recognize the new Jerusalem, right? The new heaven, the new earth as a place of God's glorious dwelling. That's a beautiful thing. In Ezekiel, God's throne, again, appears like sapphire. The book of Ezekiel is very specific about all these things in in its descriptive way. This is important for us to understand because it is from God's throne that righteous judgment comes from. The righteous judgment of God comes from His throne, comes from 
where he dwells. It's, 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 it's a part of him. That's where it comes from. And now that Jesus Christ has spoken to the seven churches, and we talked about this, I do believe, last week, the seven churches represent his whole church, the universal true church, the remnant church of Jesus Christ. Those seven churches in the book of Revelation, they represent all. So we're part of that. So those letters are specific to us as well, right? After Jesus Christ spoke to those churches, now judgment is about to begin, right? So he had addressed the churches. This is what I see you doing. This is what you uh, are doing well. This is what you need to work on. (laughs) And for pretty much everyone, even in the church of Philadelphia, they already understood repentance is a key part of living the Christian life. They were doing that. And now that that's been established, it is moving forward in God's timetable. And now judgment is about to begin. But though judgment is about to fall upon the earth, the rainbow reminds us that God is merciful even when he judges. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So all throughout Scripture, we see this as well. This whole idea of God being a merciful God. Being gentle with us, right? Um, Even in the flood, (laughs) God was merciful because he did not destroy every single person, right? Uh, Who was saved? Who was saved? Yes, exactly. And his family. And they gathered the animals and, you know built the ark. Noah built the ark. As crazy as that sounded, everyone's like, we've never seen rain before. What are you doing? It doesn't make sense. But again, even in that, God's mercy was upon the human race through Noah and his family. Usually a rainbow appears after the storm. I mean, we just had a, a, a lot of rain, uh, you know, what, a month back or something like that. And I mean, there had to be a rainbow at some point after all that rain. Um, It was a sign that God was saying that he was not going to flood the earth like that again. But here we see the rainbow before the storm. (laughs) He's putting that rainbow out there. And for these 24 elders to understand, hey, man, it's going down. There's something significant that's going to happen in the near future. All right. The third main point is this. Unlike here on earth, unlike here on earth, in heaven, Jesus Christ will be the center of attention. He's going to garner all the honor, all the glory, all the praise, all time, forever, infinitely, nonstop. That's just what it is going to be. All you need to do is look at the current generation, the younger folks, and you can see it's all about me. (laughs) Maybe it was like that the whole time, maybe in the 50s and the 60s, it was like that. But I think we're living in an unprecedented time of it's all about me. From the invention of the selfie. <laughs> People falling off cliffs and falling into, you know, alligator pits and all this nonsense. Falling off boats and drowning because they want to get a, they got to get the best selfie so they can put online. Right. From the invention of the selfie for, uh, to people striving to amass as many followers as they can on YouTube so they can be monetized and make a living, becoming an influencer. And, and you know what? I'm not trying to bash uh, people that do that. You know, it is what it is. If that's how you're making income and, and you're finding a way to make it work for you, that's fine. But what I'm saying is 
we live in a very me-focused society, a very self-conscious society. It's all about us. It's all about me and what I'm doing. Um, even with all these situations with, uh, you know, oh, the, you know, the masks and the, and the vaccines, and, you know, I, the, the more people I talk to, I find that whatever their stance on all these things are, it always boils down to me. What I feel comfortable with, what I feel opposed to, what I'm not against or what I am against. And it's like, wow, man, it's very me driven. You see, but in God's kingdom, it'll be the exact opposite. It's going to be nothing like it is on this planet. You see, it won't matter in heaven if you have a bad hair day or a bad beard day. (laughs) Because everyone's attention is going to be fixed on God. You know, right? That's the worst thing when you come into, you know, church and, uh, you know, the church building and people are having service and people are so concerned about other people or lose focus because of this and that. And it's like, man, you come into the church for the wrong reasons. Don't come here seeking people. Those things will come. Friendships will be forged. Relationships will be born. But come, as I had mentioned, because you want to give an offering, a sacrifice to God. Because you want to meet with God in a setting where it's supposed to be God's people. You know, that, that's the whole point. But not to be uh, uh, drawn astray because you're, you're not focused on hearing from Him. The one... The one true God is the one who we look upon. The one true God. He rules and reigns from heaven. And all the activity in heaven is centered around him. His will is done in heaven because he rules in heaven. And we will, uh, you know, one day be able to experience that. And it's going to be so cool i can't even again words can't really describe at all what that's going to be like all right let's go back and look at verse one so it says and this is uh, the apostle john speaking he says after this i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which i had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and i will show you what must take place after this okay after these things so Quick little recap. So Revelation chapters 2 and 3 spoke to the churches. We had already mentioned that, the seven churches that represent the whole church. After Jesus was finished speaking to those churches, after these things, now the Apostle John is beginning to experience the vision of Revelation chapter 4. And he goes on to say, And the first voice which I heard, the first voice that spoke to John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 spoke to him again here. And the voice is Jesus. It is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus called John up to heaven through a door standing open in heaven. Now, do I know what that door looks like? Do I know the dimensions of the door? I have no clue. All I know is the scripture says it's a door standing open in heaven. Jesus called him to come up. Okay. He said the voice sounding like a trumpet. The The significance of the trumpet is this voice spoke loud and clear to John. It wasn't confusing. It wasn't a little peep of a mouse. It was very direct to him, right? He got the point. He got the message. It was like 
the trumpet that gathered the congregation of Israel together, uh, that would gather an army for battle, right? They would sound the trumpet. And when you heard that trumpet as a man, you knew it's time to go to war. <laughs> you better get your whatever, get your farm tools, get whatever you got to get and mount up because we're going to go handle some business. It's, it's going to get uh, a little hairy up in here. That's what this idea was of a trumpet. And he goes on to say, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So John will be shown things that concern the future because the scripture is clear, which must take place after this. So this was not happening in John's present day, but it was things to come. Some like to interpret that John saw up through Revelation chapter 19 as fulfilled in history after John's day, but before our present day. But these events have yet to be fulfilled in any sort of literal sense. They can only be said to have been fulfilled by making them widely symbolic. And here we have symbolism again. So we should look at what Jesus will show John in the following chapters of the book of Revelation as belonging to the future and as preceding the coming reign of Jesus on earth. Again, because Jesus clearly told the Apostle John, excuse me, that he would show him things which must take place after this. All right. Again, going back to this idea of a trumpet, trumpet blast, and then the, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ telling the Apostle John to come up here. Many uh, Bible scholars see John's going up to heaven as a symbol of uh, the rapture of the church, right? Because John was called up to heaven by a voice that sounded like a trumpet, just as the church will be, as it's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 down through 17. I'll go ahead and read that. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together, that's where they get the word rapture, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." Man, that's a beautiful promise. <laughs> he said the dead in Christ are going to rise from the dead. From the, and you know, people speculate, well, what are they? What are they going to? You know what? Uh, uh, you know they. Uh, you know I got ashes. They cremated me. Well, you know I'm not no rocket scientist, but if God, you know, raised everybody from, He raised Himself from the dead. He says He's going to raise everybody else from the dead. I don't care if your ashes are sprinkled in the Pacific Ocean; those ashes are going to somehow they're going to come back together. You're going to raise, you're going to resurrect, and you're going to be caught up with the Lord in heaven. And those of us who are alive, that's what the Bible talks about. There's going to be two, right? Two in the field. <laughs> one's going to be taken up. One's going to still be here. There's going to be two in bed. One's going to stay in the bed, and someone else is going to be taken up. And this is the idea here, is that the Lord is going to rapture his church. And it comes with, through the form of this trumpet blast sounding. That's the alert that it's going down. The pattern of this is very significant. We see this because Jesus finished speaking to and dealing with the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, like I had just said. And again, I keep repeating this, but I think it's important for us to understand. That's why those seven letters were so significant to us. Because even if we didn't see ourselves directly spoken to, which we should have, we represent, those, those seven churches represent us. 
right? All the churches in human history are represented in the seven. Now, after dealing with the church, Jesus is calling John up to heaven, catching him away with this voice of a trumpet. And after this happens, before the great wrath that will be described at the beginning of Revelation chapter 6. So this is where we're at in the book of Revelation. As that great judgment on earth unfolded, John, a representative of the church, was in heaven looking down on earth. It's important to note that the word church never occurs in the chapters describing this period of the judgment of earth. Nowhere in Revelation chapters 4 through 19, which leads many to believe that the true remnant church, real, authentic followers of Jesus Christ, not just churchgoers, not just people who profess to believe in Christ, not people who just do good deeds, but I'm talking about a genuine believer of Christ. That's why they believe the church will no longer be here when the final judgment falls upon the earth. We're going to be gone. We're going to be gone. We're not going to be here. And it's okay if you can't wrap your mind around it. I can't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mind-blowing thing to consider. But, I mean, you had Star Trek back in the day talk about beam me up, Scotty. So, I mean, if they could do that with, you know, entertainment in Hollywood, how much greater is Jesus Christ, the one who can save your soul? <laughs> he, he, can, he can get you from here to the next realm in a matter of an instant, and you will pass the chasm from this life to eternal life. All right. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. It says, At once, this is uh, the Apostle John speaking, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So he goes on to say, immediately he was in the Spirit. He went to that door. <laughs> Jesus said, come up. He went up, and immediately he was in the Spirit. This was yet a different experience as John came to heaven and a heavenly perspective. So was he in his body? Was John's body in heaven also, or was it just his spirit? I mean, again, it's impossible to know. I, I, I'm not going to sit up here and spend 30 minutes, you know, I mean, going back and forth on whether or not this was happening or not. I don't know, but the, 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 the scripture says that he was in the spirit. Paul, when he had his heavenly experience, didn't know if he was in his body or not. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, I'll read that because I, I believe that this is, this is very pertinent to this portion of Scripture. It goes on to say, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in body or out of body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So that's where I, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I rest on that. I don't have to go back and forth because the scripture speaks for itself. These are, these are things that we don't have to be, you know, we don't have to fight about and argue about. And, you know, it shouldn't be divisive within the church. It's just understanding, like, what's the main point? What's the main principle? Our focal point is this, a throne set in heaven. Because John goes on to say, and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. 
This throne was the first impression John got, and it was the centerpiece of his vision. It was the throne. That's what he saw was the throne. John was fixated on the occupied throne, and everything else is described in relation to the throne because the throne is the centerpiece, the one who sits on the throne. You got to look at this. The bottom line of atheism or materialism is that there is no throne. (laughs) That's what they think. There is no seat of authority or power that the entire universe must answer to. What a, what a horrible existence. You know, I would be doing all those things they do too if I thought that there was, just, there was no point to my existence. The bottom line of humanism is that there is a throne, but man sits upon that throne. And that's what you get with humanism. And that's why you see people propping up men or propping up women or propping up these ideas that they create because they want that to be their God. The application is this. In our most basic form, mankind cannot live without the concept of a throne, a supreme ruler. So if man dethrones God as what we do when we are sinners lost in sin, he will without a doubt place himself or some man upon that throne. Maybe a political leader. I mean, we've had plenty of dictators in our time, right? Maybe not in our time, but as we look back in history, you got Hitler, you got Lenin, you got Stalin, you got Mao. Those are just a few, but these things happen because there's, again, that empty void in all of our hearts that only God can fulfill, but we will try to place all these different things. I mean, nowadays, some people just do um, sports, you know, that, that are really fanatics and they're just like, they just, they just live for, you know, whatever their team. And, you know, I, I get it. I like sports, but I'm, I'm, but I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not that invested into it, especially with little kids. It's hard to watch a full NFL game. <laughs> you know, people start crying and you got to put on, uh, what is it? Not VeggieTales or whatever, Cocomelon and my daughter. And, you know, it's like, maybe I'll get lucky and I'll watch one. <laughs> But, uh, you know, those kind of things happen. But, you know, we, we try to find other things to put in the place of God. But the one who sits on the throne is the Lord alone, Jesus Christ. You see, the throne is not empty. There is someone who sits on this great heavenly throne. The throne is a powerful reality, not merely of God's presence, but of his sovereignty but of his rightful reign and his ability to judge and to judge righteously and to judge correctly. That is what the throne represents. The application is this. We can't think rightly much about anything until we have settled it in our minds that there is an occupied throne in heaven and the God of the Bible rules from that throne if we have not come to that understanding and accepted that then everything else in our lives is going to unravel i don't care how much success worldly you have i don't care any of those things they're all going to fizzle out if we get this settled it doesn't matter if you find yourself in prison you are going to be more well off because you will have figured out (laughs) the most fundamental basic thing that you need to know before you leave this earth, which many people unfortunately leave this earth and they haven't gotten this right. And they have not gotten this right. While there may be many different interpretations, the fundamental truths are self 
evident. At the center of everything is an occupied throne, and God alone sits upon that throne. Amen? That's it. <laughs> he sits upon the throne. And see, that's, that, that's where that pride comes from, where people are like, I am unwilling to bow <laughs> to the God who sits on that throne. That's what happened to Satan. He said, I'm not... I don't want to play music for you no more. <laughs> he said, I, I want to be you. I want what you have. And when you see prideful human beings unwilling to bow, it's because that pride, Satan is, is, is he's preying on that pride within them and he's pumping them up. And they unfortunately find themselves in opposition to the Lord. That can be broken. <laughs> through intercessory prayer, through sharing the truth of the gospel to people. But everyone, I, I was sharing this with my son the other day because he said, uh, you know, he's still doing the online thing. He says, man, I don't like the online. He's, uh, he's uh, I just pray for my, my classroom. He said, because, you know, they have all these other gods and they don't know Jesus. And he, he was hurt by that. And I said, you know what, son, if you're praying for him, that's a good thing. I said, but everyone has to make their own choice. I said, they are accountable for themselves. I said, that's good. That's showing that you have compassion. You have empathy for people. That you want to see people know God, know Jesus Christ. I said, but just like you, you have to make the decision for yourself. I said, I can't live out my faith for you. You have to answer for yourself who is the Lord Jesus Christ to you. And that's for all of us, right? It doesn't matter. It's, we all have to make that personal decision to decide is, God, is the God of the Bible the one who sits on the throne or not? All right. Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. And he who, sit, who, and, excuse me, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay. He who sat, sat there was like. As John describes the occupant of the throne... He did not describe a distant figure. It was someone that was up close and personal. There is here no description of the divine being, but he's going to speak of what's going on. The description rather aims to point out the surrounding glory of God. The surrounding glory of the Lord. It says like Jasper and Carnelian in appearance. Instead of describing a specific form or figure, because we know what? God is what? Spirit. He's not, he's not, he's not in this physical form of a person, especially in heaven. I can only imagine. John describes glistening light in two colors. White, jasper, may mean diamond, or red, meaning carnelian. We are not certain but these two colors may be meant to communicate the glory of the empty tomb. If you read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 3, it talks about white. And the sacrificial love of Calvary, red, indicating the blood, the pure blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. Or they are linked with the first and last gems of the high priest's breastplate. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 39, verses 8 down through 13. All right, now he goes on and says... And there was a rainbow around or surrounding the throne. The throne was surrounded by a green-hued rainbow in appearance like an emerald. The rainbow is a reminder, again, we talked about this a minute ago, of God's commitment to his covenant with man. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 9, verses 11 down through 17. The application is this. 
around this setting of all sovereignty, power, authority, and glory, this setting of the throne of God, God has a reminder of his promise to never destroy the earth again with water. A promise that directs his sovereignty so that there is nothing against his promises. Remember, he said, I'm not going to do this again. I will not do this again. A throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. A promise says, I will fulfill this word to you and I cannot do otherwise. A rainbow around the throne. This is a remarkable thing because it shows us that God will always limit himself by his promises. You see, he's limitless, but he is a good God. He is a just God. He is a righteous God. So whatever he decrees, whatever he says, he can't go against what he says because he's God, because he's holy. This is truly what the rainbow really represents. Not at all how some of this world misused the rainbow. And I'm not going to go into great description. I think we all know good and well how the rainbow is being misrepresented and being misused. But that's how Satan operates. He takes something godly and tries to pervert it and make it be unclean. But the rainbow is not for what it's being used for today to flaunt and parade around. (laughs) It is something of beauty and it is a true representation of God's promise to creation. I like this quote. The believer glories in the sovereign. This is an this is an anonymous quote as well. I don't know who said this, but I, I believe it, it has uh, some great significance. The believer glories in the sovereignty of God because he knows that God's sovereignty is on his side. It means that no good purpose of God relating to the believer will ever be left undone. And so, you know, if you find yourself in situations where you're like, man, Lord, this is difficult. I don't understand this. you got to trust that he knows best and that he's working things out in his time for your benefit. That's why I said at the beginning of the message, you're going to be richly blessed today. I don't know if it's going to be, you're going to be blessed in the way you think you should be blessed, right? Because we think, oh, yeah, I'm going to be blessed but it's like the Lord will bless us in ways that we really need it. And it's a benefit. It's like when I talk to my, I mean, I'm always talking to Veronica about something. And, you know, I mean, it could be something as silly as I'm super late. Oh, this is a Friday night. I'm super lazy. And I'm like, can we just order the pizza and just have them deliver it? She's like, it's going to cost like $60. Why don't you just get dressed again and go out and get it? And then, you know, after, you know, minutes of mulling over it and just hating the fact that I got to trip back out and drive 10 minutes to go pick up this pizza. I go do it. I take Kalos and, and I come back and I'm like, yeah, you're right. It was, it was, it was, you know, this was much better. And, and that's how it is with God, right? He, he's like, <laughs> we have an idea of what we want to do. And he sometimes says, no, that's not the way you should go. But then when we submit, and allow his truth to go through us and be in our lives, we come to find out, man, it was better your way. It was the right decision to go it this route and not do it on my own. Because if I went my way, I would have done messed it all up and would have been worse off and would have been sulking even more. <laughs> That's just how it is. All right. 
Revelation 4, verse 4. We're almost about to wrap it up. I think we're a little bit more than halfway through. Okay. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Okay. So around this main throne that has all this radiance around it are 24 other thrones. Before the elders caught John's eye, he noticed the 24 thrones that they actually sat on. These 24 thrones are obviously lesser thrones than the one that they're sitting around. They don't have the same prominence as the centerpiece, the main throne, but they are thrones nonetheless. Later, John will mention their song of worship in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. That's what uh, we will tackle, Lord willing, next week. On the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting. Well, who are these 24 elders? That is a question that readily comes up. Commentators debate whether they are glorified human beings or angelic beings. But taking all things into consideration, the elders certainly seem to represent God's people. That's for sure. That's what we can all agree upon is they represent the true and living God. Elders represent the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. The 24 courses of the priesthood represented all of the priests. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles represent all the faithful. All of the faithful. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, the 24 elders sang a song of praises to Jesus, and they cried out, For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You see, in that passage, the 24 elders clearly spoke as representatives of all God's people, of the great company of the redeemed. So that's what can lead us to believe that these are redeemed, regenerated people that are these 24 elders. They were clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. The white robes and crowns of the elders seem to indicate that they are indeed human beings in glory, of course. These are human beings that have died, have resurrected bodies, and are now in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Angels are sometimes presented in white robes or garments, but saints also have white robes as a picture of their imputed righteousness. However, we never see angels crowned, but believers will be. The application is this. Redeemed, glorified man sits enthroned with Jesus Christ. On lesser thrones, for sure, but on thrones, nonetheless. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing to consider when you... And again, that's just, you walk through this life. You run your race. You finish your race with integrity and, and, and honoring God. Though you may not have had everything the way you thought it should have been, or the way that society points it out or pictures it out to be, you run your race, you finish your race well. You have eternity to look forward to and an eternity of just true blessing and true cheer with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 tells us, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is a very important verse, but we have to point out that this verse clearly points out that all true followers of Jesus Christ will suffer with him. You see, many Christians don't want to suffer. They think that Jesus is made for them, that he's just a genie in the bottle and they, they can get what they want and live however they want and they can do whatever they please. But a true follower of Jesus Christ understands that this life will not be a bed of roses. Definitely not all the time. You may have seasons of peace. It's just like plenty and when it's going to be lean. Think about Joseph in Egypt, right? The uh, whatever Pharaoh had those dreams and he's like, man, these cows are crazy. And da, 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 what is going on? I don't understand it. And the Lord gave him a vision. He said, hey, man, you need to get all this grain and store it up because as rich as prosperous as your land is, at some point you're going to go through seven years of famine. And that's us. That's our walk with Christ. There's times where you're going to have years of plenty, but you're also going to have years of famine where it's going to be difficult and hard. And you have to trust in the Lord. No matter what you go through. You see, for Christ, you may be suffering by, you may be misunderstood. You may be being treated unfairly because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You may even be attacked physically because your allegiance with Jesus Christ. But if you and I remain faithful until the end of our lives or until he returns for his church you will be glorified with your heavenly Father and your Savior in heaven forever. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11-13 through 13 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I mean, these are, these are rich nuggets of truth that you and I have to hold on to, to be able to get through day to day and trust that it's all going to work out. For our loved ones that aren't saved, it's all going to work out. I'm going to keep interceding for you. I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm going to keep you know, <laughs> living for Christ despite your rejection of him, because I believe that you could be saved. And we hold on to these promises. We hold on to these promises. Okay, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Two more verses. It says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. It's a whole lot. <laughs> and from the throne came flashes of lightning, thundering, and voices. The lightning, thunder, and voices, the fire, are reminiscent of God's fearful presence at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 down through 19, and Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 down through 19. They communicate the awe associated with the throne of God. Where the Bible talks about, man, we're going to cast our crowns. <laughs> Now people are like, oh, I'm going to get my crown. Man, my crown's that, man, 24 karat gold. <laughs> I have emeralds and ruby. 
Man, you gotta cast that crown down, man. You ain't gonna care about that crown. You're gonna be so in awe of Christ. You ain't tripping off that. Again, I talked with the Bible talks about it. Streets paved with gold. What we think is important, mineral wise, material wise, is something we walk on. He's not even tripping off that. We're not gonna be tripping off these crowns. We're gonna cast them down because of the awe, because of the reverent fear that we have for God, because we're so grateful for what he has done, because he's so worthy that even though we receive the crown of life, we're going to cast it down and say, Lord, you're the only one worthy to hold that crown on your head. I'm not worthy to wear this, but he's such a loving God and he's such a good God. He's going to give it to you. It's like the prodigal son. It's like the father. He came with the signet ring. He got the sandals. He's got the robe. Go kill the fatted calf. This dude was sleeping with prostitutes and piddled away all his, his earning of life savings. Father says, God, you come back. You've repented. You're true. You see the error in your ways and you came to the only one who could save you. Come, let's feast. Let's have a party. And that's how it's going to be for us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's why we got to show mercy and love to other people. We can't say we love God and we don't love people. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I love you, Jesus. All up in church. Can't stand, man. I wish that person go to hell. What? What? <laughs> Blessing and cursing out the same mouth it should not be. And I know sometimes it's difficult because we got to deal with difficult people. Sometimes we're difficult, but we got to love people. We got to have a heart for people. It's so important. All right. Kind of went off there for a second. <laughs> You know, this whole idea uh, of this, this lightning and, and, and flashing and thundering, it communicates the awe associated with the throne of God. And, and I probably shared this before a while back, but I'll share it again because I, I've had a couple instances where I dropped to my knees. <laughs> There's been a time where I was not sober. <laughs> been another time when I was sober. But nonetheless, I remember just years ago, I was in the recording studio and, you know, everybody was, uh, you know, we're doing our thing and. You know, drinking, smoking, whatnot. And, you know, I just remember clearly, you know, it, it was the Lord for sure, because it was like a thundering voice I never heard in my life. And it was just basically telling me, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why am I over here partying and, and doing all this stuff? And you know what? I'm, and, I, and mind you, I'm in a room with about five or six other, you know, guys. None of us are saved. And I just fell on my knees and I was just on my knees, bawling out in the middle of a bunch of you know, young men, older men were, you don't do that. <laughs> you don't do that. You don't do that. Like, you're supposed to be cool. You're supposed to be hard. You're supposed to, you know, you don't do that. And they're like, what is wrong with this dude? And that was one of the first experiences that I had where the Lord was really trying to get a hold of me. But it was, it was that reverent fear that brought me to my knees. And I was not even close to being saved at the time. But God was just basically like convicting me. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like, why are you in here? Why are you lighting up all these blunts? Why are you smoking and drinking all this alcohol? And uh, But again, I share that because it's that whole point. Again, this idea of this reverence because of the awe, the awesomeness of God falling upon you. And I mean, can you only imagine being in the Holy of Holies? And that's, you know, it's like that one... Uh, you know, the, the one, um, I can't remember his name, but he has that great song, I Can Only Imagine. And he taught, he's describing, well, what am I going to do? Am I, you know? And it's like, man, you're going to fall on my face. And I'm not going to be talking about anything when I first get up in there because I'm just going to be in awe of uh, the glory of God, him allowing me to be a part of that, to be in his heaven. You see, 
these seven lamps, I'll go back to this. The seven lamps uh, of fire were, were burning before the throne. The Holy Spirit, right? The seven spirits of God are referred to in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, and also in Isaiah chapter, chapter 11, excuse me, verse 2. This is represented by the seven burning lamps. In other passages, he, the Holy Spirit, he, we don't ever want to refer to him as an it. That is so disrespectful to the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He has a personality. Right? He, he's not an it. You don't ever say it, the Holy Spirit. Like, no, he, 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 he's living, breathing. He, he, he has a personality. But he's also represented as a dove in Matthew chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 16, or a flame of fire. Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 3. You see, the beauty in all of these descriptions of the Holy Spirit is he can't be put in a box. God can't be put in a box. You can't try to figure God out and be like, he's just this. No, yeah, he's just holy, but he takes on many different forms. He lives outside of space and time. The markings of time is, irreve- is irrelevant, excuse me, to God because he transcends time. That's why Psalms 90 verse 5 says the marking of time is irrelevant to God because he transcends it. You see, the Holy Spirit, he is part of the Godhead who reigns above all things ever created. We see the unmatched power and limitlessness of God in the Holy Spirit being described to us in these several different ways. The lamps of fire are important because the Holy Spirit is not ordinarily visible to become visible, he represents himself in a physical form like a dove or a tongue of fire. But that's why, you know, Jesus says, you, know, you want to know my will, get in my word. The word of God reveals the will of God for your life and mine. So we don't got to go tarot card reading. We don't go to astrology. You don't got to go in the back of the Mercury News and try to read a horoscope. You want to know the will for your life. Get in the word of God. The thing is, half the time we're just lazy and we don't want to read. Well, nowadays, technology has made it so easy, you don't even have to read. You should read. I'm not promoting don't read, but what I'm saying is you can play audio books of the Bible. All you have to do is go on the Bible app and it'll, it'll say it to you. you know. But in any event, you've got to get the word of God in you. That way you can understand his, his, his revealed truth for your life. Okay, and the last verse, Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Okay, a sea of glass. Is this sea really made of glass, or did it just look like it? Again, this is one of those things I don't know. (laughs) I'll just be honest. I'm not going to say either way. Some say it looks like glass, while others say it was made of glass. Either way, it is the finest glass-like crystal. This body of water before the throne is a reminder of the labor in the tabernacle and our washing of the water of the word. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26 tells us that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The application is this. The word is to us a crystal glass, giving us clear sight of God and ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us that. And James chapter 1, verse 23 is one of my favorite verses. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. What does the next verse say? He walks away and forgets what he looks like. The word of God is that to us. Next up, the four living creatures full of eyes. From comparison with Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, we understand these creatures to be cherubim, the spectacular angelic beings surrounding the throne of God. You see, Satan was once one of these high angelic beings, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14. Cherubim were also prominent in the actual design of the tabernacle, particular, particularly excuse me, in the most holy place. The scriptures show us that the tabernacle is a model of the throne of God in some manner. And the last portion here says, full of eyes in front and in back, full of eyes around and within. You see, their multitude of eyes indicate that these living creatures are not blind. They're not instruments or robots. They know and understand. They have great insight and perception greater than man does. These beings are of great intelligence and understand the existence and worship of God. That's why they were created. The application is this. All failure to truly worship God is rooted in a lack of seeing and understanding. The way these super intelligent beings worship God reminds us that our worship must be intelligent. We can't just be blindly saying we're praising God. There has to be structure. There has to be order. There has to be thought into it. It's not just a loosey-goosey thing you do. That's why we don't just come up in the church building. Like we should be preparing ourselves when we get out of bed, when we come to a corporate setting like this with believers. We just don't, we don't, you don't come up. I mean, I was going to say, you don't just come off a bender and come to church. Now, if you end up like that, it is what it is. The Lord's going to allow you in. But I'm saying when we're becoming more mature in Christ, there should be a regimen about how we prepare to come into the house of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, our service must not be rash, but reasonable. We should be able to give a clear reason. God hates a blind sacrifice. He doesn't hate a lot. <laughs> but that's one of the things he does not like is a blind sacrifice. John chapter 4 verse 22 says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we, <clears throat> we, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. May we be those who truly honor God in love and in truth by worshiping him in spirit and in truth and by loving people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, we thank you for just this t brief time to be able to glean from your word, to understand your truth, or to understand how it is so beneficial for us to humble ourselves before you. Lord, we look forward to the time where we can get to experience this. Lord, how magnificent is it going to be to be in the Holy of Holies, to worship along with the 24 elders, to lay down our crowns before you and to praise you for saving our souls and to know that we're going to have unhindered, uninterrupted fellowship with you for all of eternity. I could only imagine myself what that's going to be like, the task and the things that you'll have for us to do living in the new Jerusalem for eternity. But until then, Lord, may we not be idle. 
Lord, will you help us not to just sit on our laurels? May we not be lazy, but would you give us a heart for the lost? Would you give us a heart for the church? Lord, will we come along those that are in the faith and support them and help them and love on them? May we stand strong upon the rock of Jesus Christ and not waver to and fro with the things that are going on in our day, the things that are happening in society, the things that are happening in the governmental level, the things that are happening maybe even in our own homes. May you help us to just continue to keep our eyes fixed upon the one and true living God, the one Savior who can raise someone from the dead and save a soul from hell. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you. Lord, may you receive this with all honor, glory, and love. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.